Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 419. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Jeffrey Shaw. Jeffrey's a coach for small businesses, brand management consultant, TEDx speaker, host of the Self-Employed Life podcast, as well as an author with his newest book, The Self-Employed Life, Business and Personal Development Strategies That Create Sustainable Success. In this conversation with Jeffrey, we discuss the notion of and nuances in authenticity, the power of the statement for the sake of. Jeffrey's career as a photographer, how and why business is personal, especially when you're self-employed, the business model of multiples and building trust. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review. And a big shout out to Megan for your sparking review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to catch all your future episodes. Now for the show. Jeffrey Shaw, great to have you on the show. You and I are connected for a number of reasons, uh, one of which is the wonderful swagger mama, um, <laughs> Leslie M. Uh, also, yeah. you have uh, published your second book with the wonderful team at Page Two, Self-Employed Life. Jeffrey Shaw, in your own words, how would you like to describe yourself? Oh my gosh, how do I describe myself? I describe myself as the guy who's been self-employed since the age of 14 when I sold eggs door to door um, against every fear I had because I was so I had such paralyzing shyness and you know, I've spent a, a lifetime looking at why in the world do we do what we do? Like why would I at 14 years old fight against paralyzing fear? of being shy to knock on doors to sell eggs. And for that matter, why does anybody roll out of bed and think, hey, I think I'll be self-employed because it's not the easiest road. And I just have come to the conclusion that I think describes me best is that um, I'm always willing to, to do something, whatever it is, when the benefit is greater than the obstacle. You know, whether it's, you know, I, I, I enjoyed the process of selling eggs because what I got hooked on at 14 years old was, what intrigued me about business was bigger than my fear. And that, that continues to, I think, define who I am. I continue to move forward, whether it's public speaking, writing books, uh, all of which come with a handful of fears, but the rewards, which are usually the intangible, well, money's good, but the intangible rewards of becoming a bigger version of myself continues to propel me beyond, uh, the challenges of the fears. And I think that's, uh, probably my own personal best description of myself. That's wonderful. And I loved how you describe also the fear of getting behind the wheel at 14 years old, mm. obviously before having even a driving license to go out and, and get the eggs and sell them. My wife the other day was commenting, oh, look at these wonderful eggs. And they, they, it's true that they were expensive. They're the zero eggs, you know, in terms of qualification. They also came with feathers. And as you mm. described so wonderfully, uh, well, you left a little bit of chicken poop <laughs> on the eggs yeah. to keep them authentic. I love that idea. I mean, it's not it's not fake. It's not superficial. It's it's yeah. a it's a genuine way of staying real. Yeah, it was. You know, I, I have to. You know, now at my age, now in midlife, I, I laugh at my instincts as a kid. Like I don't know why at fourteen years old. I mean, I just, but again, that's my fascination with business. I was always just so fascinated, and you know, I look at business today as I did even then as a massive puzzle. Uh, it's just something so intriguing about the pieces of what we put out in the world. And, and I, I've learned to gain so much confidence in the pieces of business to the extent that I'm pretty confident that anything can be figured out in business. Minter, you will be hard pressed to ever see me do a table puzzle because there's always going to be one freaking piece that you can't fit in. And that's going to drive me nuts. Like I don't see a table puzzle as a hundred percent solvable but I see every puzzle piece in business is solvable. So it, it just is an intriguing process to me. So, you know, my, I know my 14 year old mindset was thinking, how can I assure my customers that these eggs are really authentic? And I was, it was a country town, but the people living there were primarily from New York city because it was the startup uh, production plant for IBM. So it was, uh, IBM came out along in 1967 and just bought up a huge amount of land in this farm country. And brought people from all over the place, primarily Westchester County and, and New York City, to, to now live amongst cows and chickens 
and we're so everyone living there was so misplaced. <laughs> I mean, we we shared a phone. Did you imagine moving from New York City to a town where you had to share your phone number with five families because we had party lines. There weren't enough phone lines yet. And so people were really displaced and not sure what to make of their world. So to me, they there was incredible value in this idea of farm fresh eggs. And I love the point you made. It's like there's a fine line in business between manipulation, if you will, and deepening the authenticity. And to me, you know, I will do what needs to, four words answer a lot of my questions in business, four words. They answer almost every social media post that I make, which many of them are controversial. Uh, they answer everything I do in business. Those four words are for the sake of. Like, why am I doing this? What is it for the sake of? And to me, leaving a little chicken poop on those eggs was for the sake of deepening the feeling of authenticity to the customer. One could say market, one could say all of marketing is a manipulation, but what makes it clean, energetically clean, is when you can answer the question authentically and honestly and with integrity, what you're doing it for the sake of. And to me, I was charging more than the market price for these dozen of eggs. I knew even then that door-to-door -door service as services in business today is not a it's not a it's not a differentiator because somebody else can match that service so quickly that service in in and of itself is not a differentiator so to me the differentiator had to be a deeper level of authenticity so i would leave um, my barometer of how much chicken poop to leave was people would often as we do right we open the carton to make sure none of the eggs are broken and when I would see just the right amount of wince on the face of my customer, <laughs> that they were a little grossed out, but not so grossed out that they would object. So yeah, chicken, chicken poop, uh, chicken poop on eggs went a long way. The chicken poop effect. <laughs> yeah. it, it really, it speaks to intention mm. because you could also get out your syringe possibly and, and squirt some chicken poop yeah. onto your eggs. And, and that feels very different. Mm-hmm wiping off the chicken poop on five of the six eggs right. is one thing, making them clean, whittling it down, but leaving the other one, not because you're lazy, but because you have the intention of showing that these are legitimate, genuine articles from the farm. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, the cool thing is, and if anybody is familiar with farm fresh eggs, they come in a variety of colors, right? They're not, sure. bleached, they're not bleached white. So you know, that in itself had that authentic feeling that there was this mixture of colors. And sometimes, you know, I kind of liked it. I, I remember thinking as I was, because I would go to the farm and actually fill up the cardboard cartons with these, you know, fill up the dozen cartons. And I always had a certain amount of compassion for the oddball, right? So there was always that oddball you color. Saw, you, you, know? you saw yourself. <laughs> I in, saw myself in, in the, the eggs. Black sheep. Yeah, the black sheep. <laughs> there you, you go. The black sheep. Mixed yeah. metaphor. Yeah, exactly. There was something about the, I felt like I was making, have, that, well, I felt like I was offering a social commentary <laughs> to, to make oddity a good thing. Um, and in fact, it is when it comes to farm fresh eggs, the, the range of colors and the oddity of it. Uh, it's the fact that we live in a world that, you know, bleaches everything white to make it standardized. And we need to, standardization has always kind of gotten under my skin because I never felt like the standard person. And uh, so I've been, been an advocate for the oddities. <laughs> well, so this is kind of a good conduit to the next question I wanted to ask you, which was about your photography, portrait photography, which obviously took up the, the bulk of your self-employment, it seems. Um, mm -hmm. So portrait photography, one tends to be hired to make beautiful people. You know, that's what you're trying to do. And then you can go back into the, the, the dark room and, and, and in the old days, anyway, mm -hmm, yeah. you, you had the, the development and then you get you can digitize them and retouch them. I mean, the, the, the old fashioned ways of retouching, let's, let's move forward to the digital world. How would you describe the evolution of portrait photography when you think of that egg, that sort of off-colored egg and this notion of authenticity? Where are we in portrait photography? Hmm. Ah, what a fascinating question. Now, I think it's important to understand that who I photographed, right? So I, I was the family portrait photographer for very affluent families, like the very, the very affluent so, in the United so States. So seeking even more perfect photographs, I'm thinking. Well, the interesting thing is they, they're presenting themselves with a level of perfection, right? I mean, they're beautifully groomed people. Um, 
remarkably authentic, you know, and I will be, I, I always want to be very clear on that. I was raised, I grew up lower middle-class in this small country town where I sold eggs. And I heard every stereotype imaginable about rich people, you know, that they were, the kids were raised by nannies, that they had all the money in the world, they weren't happy. And, you know, all those things, none of which I found to be true. But I think part of it is, again, very clever and very intentional in my marketing was that it's how one defines their ideal customer. My ideal customer, I always, as a photographer, always deemed as family-centric affluent families. And the difference is, is that there are, there are plenty of affluent families that aren't family-centric. They do have all the nannies shuffling the kids around. They, they are, you know, to, to maybe it's a, an obnoxious phrase, but they will tend to be maybe the ladies who lunch. That's not my ideal client. My ideal client were the family-centric affluent families. They were the ones that had a family of four would have a staff of eight to 10 people so that mom and dad can go to the soccer games with the kids, right? They were the families that um, were highly engaged with their kids. They were the moms that were volunteering at the kids' school and running the fundraisers and the organizations. They weren't just sitting around and lunching. So within a very defined audience of affluent families, I was very clear that the people that are more inclined to hire a family portrait photographer at the rates by which I charged were going to be those that were very family centric. I always said, you know, I had a bit of a naive view of the world because my clients, they don't, they don't divorce. They don't, you know, they're, they're such tight family units. Uh, But that, that was my deal. So, but they did present themselves authentically, but with a certain amount of, you know, Hey, money has, has, certain privileges to it. So they, they're beautiful. They look good. They're well taken care of. The kids are well taken care of. They have, of course, gorgeous homes. I photographed entirely on locations. So I couldn't have better locations to photograph at. Um, my job was to pull out the authentic- authenticity within the perfection, to break the veneer. One of my favorite uh, clients and stories around, around that idea was uh, the supermodel Stephanie Seymour. I don't know if it was, she was like the original Victoria's Secret model amongst the, you know, Christy Brinkley, Cindy Crawford, the, the whole supermodel genre. And I photographed her and her kids. She has four kids uh, for many, many, many years. And, you know, I said to her once a couple of times after, I think maybe the second time she asked me to photograph her family, I asked her, I said, Stephanie, you have access to every photographer in the world. Like, why do you hire me? And she said, because every photographer photographs me from my veneer, my exterior. That's what I'm known for. She says, you're the only photographer that gets cracks through that veneer, captures me and my relationship with my kids as we exist in our real life. So I actually had a, a little bit of a, so it's so often in life we're digging to pull out somebody's authenticity. And my job was I was presented with perfection and had to dig for the authenticity underneath it. So often we're, like I said, so often we're starting with the diamond in the rough and looking for the beauty. My role was almost opposite. I was starting with perfection, breaking through the veneer to pull out something that was uh, more genuine. So I think that sort of speaks to not not the notion of wealth of your affluence, affluent clients, but in marketing, certainly in the company I worked for for 16 years at Lahiad, we sought to present perfection. Mm-hmm. Where you spend oodles of money on retouching the images and and getting and knocking out hairs that are out of place and, and such like, not to mention getting rid of wrinkles that mm-hmm. God knows existed. How can you bring that kind of a concept into your company? Because you, you obviously want to present that my product's really good, right? My service is really good. Otherwise, what, what am I in business for? How do you? breakthrough and and is there what any thoughts and parallels connecting the dots into crafting that type of genuine authenticity as opposed to fabricated mm-hmm. authenticity yeah oh it's so good you know it's people want i truly believe people want to be to seen for their own truth and authenticity. And they want to exist in a world that feels that way to them. I mean, we live in such a transparent world. Uh, and yet we also have to understand the reality. So for example, let me put it in the terms of retouching, which you had mentioned. 
I had a team of retouchers in my business. I never personally did it myself because I made money behind the camera and I made money being in front of my clients to help them make their decisions. I was never a photographer who got sucked into the, the, the endless hole of retouching. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, uh, but I had retouchers on hand because I didn't want to hand over that control to an outside source. So I'd look over the shoulder, if you will, but I, I didn't even need to do that. I always said I hired really good people and then leave them alone. And, but our criteria was to bring things back to the degree to which we feel like we experience them in real life. Okay. So when it came to retouching, the fact of the matter is we don't see every and again, there's a metaphor here I want, uh, want people to play out. We don't see every wrinkle and imperfection in life because life is in motion, okay? When a moment is frozen, whether it's in a photograph or there's a moment frozen in our life because there's trauma, we will see more of the imperfections. The goal is to moderate those imperfections to the degree that we experience them in life in motion. And that was my criteria in retouching. You know, it was a point where how much do we remove, how much do we soften wrinkles? How much do we soften and how much do we thin the arms a little bit? Only because that's how we actually see it in real life. Because in the photograph, that woman wearing a sleeveless dress may have her elbows pressed into her side because she's nervous, right? There's a compression of the, which is making her arm look bigger than it really is. So there's a degree to which I'm willing to narrow the arm because in that frozen moment of time, we're going to see that as an an unfair imperfection because the reality is life in motion. We don't focus on that as much. Mm -hmm. And that to me is, again, is a metaphor for living life, right? We live life in these frozen moments sometimes, and we can focus on the imperfections and the things that are going wrong. But when life is in motion, we don't see every flaw. So my criterion retouching was it was only fair to the subject to bring it back to how we experience life in motion. So maybe the, the litmus test I wanted to push out, Jeffrey, is should the image have unfairly presented a thinner arm than it actually is? <laughs> would you go in and add some skin? Because the, let's say that that would be, in general terms, considered uncomplimentary. Because yeah. the idea, of course, you know, I think I, honestly, I yeah, to me, leadership, and I, and I think everybody's a leader. You know, I it's it's always an interesting struggle on my podcast, the self employed life. That whenever I do an a episode on leadership, the episodes don't do really well because for whatever reason, self employed. Despite my continual messaging of this, a lot of self employed business owners don't see themselves as leaders because the term leader has been a it's been granted to the corporate world. But the fact of the matter is we're all leaders. Every parent who's trying to get their child to eat vegetables is leading. Every teacher who's trying to get a student to absorb content is leading. So with that, I believe so wholeheartedly, Minter, bigger than we could probably ever cover this. I believe so wholeheartedly in the, the responsibility of impact of when you're a leader. The words that come out of your mouth matter. The energy by which you say words matters. How? Right. We need to take responsibility for that. And I feel the same way about corporate responsibility. How, to what degree people put photographs out of models that are so over manipulated that it doesn't look like the real body and the impact that's having on some teenage boy or girl who has body dysmorphia. You know, you have to take responsibility for the whole chain of reactions for our own actions. So, you know, Yes, I think there's a point. I mean, I am definitely not for overly retouched photographs, which is why. And the cool thing was, and I will tell you that I, what I, one of the things I loved about these very real affluent people that I worked with is the sensitivity. We, there was a, a client who got honestly a bit emotionally, ir, irrationally emotional with me because I had over retouched under her children's eyes. She had twin boys that tended to have darker circles. They were little kids, but they just, by culture, they tended to have darker circles under their eyes, little bags. And my retoucher went a little too far. And the message to her was that we saw flaw in her children. And she took such deep offense to that. Actually, emotion, irrationally emotional. I remember the instance and thinking, okay, this is going way over the top of how upset she is. Because, hey, I, I redo anything that's not to our client's liking. 
there was no objection here about fixing it. But I realized how as a parent, as a mom who loved her children so deeply, how the implication was that her children were not accepted for who they were. Right. It's, so I, I think you have just, to take, it's all actions that we take uh, responsibility for. Yeah, totally. And for having worked in this industry, I mean, in a corporate world where you know, I do photo shoots on a regular basis, what I would often see is imposing our own ideals on the image, which are, are, are not projected realities. They're just projections of what I think it should be looking like and what I think is the most attractive and, and probably within that, uh, uh, bringing my own baggage into what I think is right. So I have bags under my eyes. Well, I better take them out of the kids because I don't like my bags kind of yeah. thing. So this really brings a wonderful uh, segue into the next point, which I loved one of the phrases you write, because this idea, don't take it personally. Yeah. What a nonsense. I would hear that <laughs> regular. I worked in a bank yeah. and, and it's sort of a license to be uh, not very nice with your employees. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like you, you get paid shitloads. So you just shut up and you do what I tell you to do and don't mm -hmm. take any criticisms personally. What do you mean? It's not personal. It's business. I mean, yeah. hello. It's so ridiculous. And you know, and exactly. I mean, there's just so many cliches in business, you know, business is business. Don't take it personal. It's such, it is such nonsense. And, but I will just as quickly say that what I think is so important to, to defend that uh, ourselves from saying, it's like, it's not really they're dainty wallflowers that our feelings get hurt. So, cause I think defending that fighting against that notion of uh, don't take it personal fighting against that has then led to people saying, Oh, you're, you're snowflakes. You're so dainty. Right. Like don't your feelings get hurt. I'm like, that's not it at all. Yeah, that's sure. not it. It's like, I think my skin is plenty thick enough. The fact of the matter is you can't be self-employed and not take it personal because for one, you care so deeply about what you're doing. But I think even bigger than that, Minter, is the fact that you're when you're self-employed and re really just any small business, particularly when you're self-employed, your level of success is actually relative to your personal development, right? You can't, Jim Rohn, and his quote is repeated about six times in my book because I live it. And his quote is, is that your level of success will rarely exceed your level of personal development. And that is a core message that, People in business need to understand. And I, I've reframed that to look at it as a measure of capacity. Anytime I have wanted more abundance in my business, more success in my business, I first have realized I need to increase the capacity within myself to perhaps handle that, right? Because for one, think about how often we say we don't have enough time, how often we say we don't have enough energy, we're overwhelmed. Well, every time you say that to yourself, you have innately limited the capacity. And it, it's fascinating to me when clients come to me from a coaching, they come to me to increase their business. And at the same time, they're late for calls or their excuses for not doing thing, getting things done is that they're overwhelmed and too busy. I'm like, how is it you're asking me to help you get more busy business, but you're telling me you're too busy to handle what you've got? Like that has to change first. You have to first change the mindset to increase, to be ready for more capacity. That also relates to how much people think they deserve. Right? It's really hard to get people to step into deserving more than they have because we've been socialized to be humble and socialized with humility. So it's hard to get people, wasn't it L'Oreal that, uh, what was their, their tagline? Um, Do you deserve it? Yeah. You're worth it because you're worth it. It was a brilliant, it's actually one of the best, it was a brilliant line, a brilliant uh, brand statement because it, it increased people's capacity of what they think they deserve so that they'll maybe spend a little bit more on themselves. So I look at how you go to the next level of success. It has to, when you're self-employed and your business is innately connected to who you are, it's not that our feelings get hurt. It's not that there's no division between our business lives and our personal lives, which can be a struggle. None of that is the biggest issue. The biggest issue is that when you're self-employed, you can, your degree of success is relative to how much you do the work on the inside of yourself to increase your capacity to handle more and to be more. One of the sentences, Jeffrey, that you used in the book is, um, uh, we're just going to find it again, which is what motivates us most is the desire to become bolder versions of ourselves. And I really like that because it made me stop and think. 
what what are my real intrinsic motivators and how do I tap into that? What is the version of myself? What am, who am I first of all? Yeah. And then and then once I've got that, then I can start being bolder. I thought that was a develop developed for me what's behind that sentence. Well, what's behind that is being that ridiculously shy kid at 14 years old. And really that what kept me motivated was continually finding more in myself and becoming really compelled by that. That's it. That is true intrinsic motivation. And I think, you know, money is a motivator for people to a degree, but it's not really the intrinsic motivation. There has to be more to that than that. Cause I know plenty of people that are, that financially have very successful businesses and are miserable. And quite honestly, in a way I was one of them. I mean, I hired my first coach in 1999 before it was popular. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like, it was sort of like 1999. It was sort of like, you didn't tell people you go to, went to yoga yeah. class when you had a problem. <laughs> you hired a coach when you had a real problem. Exactly. You didn't want to tell people about yeah. that. And I can remember the first time seeing a business card in a health food store that a business card for a life coach. I'm like, what the hell is a life coach? Like, how do we need, why do we need a coach to teach us how to live? You know, but, uh, but in 1999, it was the peak earning years of my career. I, I, I was you know, married at the time, three kids, the perfect house in Connecticut, a thriving business with an eight week, mailing, uh, eight week waiting list and not happy. Right. It wasn't, it just, it, something was off. Like I, I could innately feel like, eh. You know, it just was okay. And um, that's when I hired a coach. I'm like, there has to be more to this. So the money, the, the plateaus of success that we set for ourselves um, are motivators, but they're not intrinsic motivation. And I think what every successful person I have interacted with, and it was one of the things I loved about being a photographer was hanging out with these CEOs and was always so I was always so surprised at how mindset oriented they were and how much that was a driver in their success. But every successful person I've really gotten to know and hang out with, the real intrinsic motivation is they keep finding more in themselves than they thought was there. Like they keep finding out they have more grit. They keep finding that they have, you know, like I said, they, they're just like drawn to becoming a bolder version of themselves. It's like this constant quest to being more ballsy about the way you present yourself, being more authentic on stage as a speaker. Like, you know, you mentioned Leslie, you know, just that swagger, you know, just stepping into that, like what keeps the dangling carrot, if you will, that the true intrinsic motivation is finding more swagger in yourself than you had yesterday. And that's what I mean. That's what's behind that sentence to me. Like, I think the true motivator, what really keeps people going is that their, their true genuine desire to, to find a bigger version of themselves than they see today. Before moving on then, Jeffrey, I'd like to just dip into that moment we decided to the life coach. Mm -hmm. It's been my observation, A, that getting to know who you are is, is really an elusive task for most of us. And, and speaking for myself, I still feel I've got plenty of, of gap that I can continue to fill. So this has been a long journey. I'm 56 now. You would have thought I got the picture, but actually it's still. I'm 57. So I'm right there with you. <laughs> work in progress. And, and so when you tell kids this, or you start off with youngsters to tell them who they are, well, what was, was there something else? I mean, more than, because maybe it was just a buildup of layers and you finally said, Oh, fucking I, I'm, I'm ready got to see the coach, but was there some trigger that helped you move along? Because my other observation is that oftentimes it's a life-changing experience, a near-death experience or something huge that pushes you into the, all right, I've got to find my skin. Oh man, I, you know, Minter, throughout my life, I've had so many, you know, and, and other people look at my life. I mean, I've, I've made some huge pivots and changes in my life. I came out as a gay man at 44 years old. Uh, so like the question you're asking, like, what's a life event? Like what causes that? Like, how do you, you know, I'd been married for 19 years. I had raised three kids. I had divorced, uh, and had after divorce, I continued to date women. I, I even got engaged for a short period of time to a woman, uh, broke that off a couple of years later, met a magnificent woman. So you know, people are like, how could you not have known? Well, I'll tell you, what, there's a reason why we always say we have to come out to ourselves first. Like I could not see it uh, for a whole host of reasons. Um, any attraction I personally felt towards men was confused with, for me, a constant never ending quest to have been, have to have received male love, which was completely lacking from my existence in childhood. It just did not exist from father, brothers, 
uncle, no one. So for me, it collapsed into confusion of, I just want to be loved by a man. It, that did not equate to any sexual attraction. So I lived my life in a traditional model before me. The life-changing moment in that case was having met and married for a second time, the most magnificent version of a woman one can imagine. <laughs> Beautiful, successful, progressive, supportive. When you have found perfection in someone you're sharing your life with and you're not feeling something, that raised the question for me. I'm like, what is off here? Because literally I've been graced with perfection and I'm not feeling a depth of love and protection and sexual attraction. And that, that the raising of that question got answered very quickly for me mm -hmm. to the extent that, you know, a year after marriage that I, I came out to her and she was yet again, incredibly supportive. And basically it's like, you do you right. And, wow. and, you know, but it was the safest because of who she is she created a safe, a safe place that I had never known before. So to your question about life coaching, very similar. And, and you and I, again, we both just disclosed our ages and we're similar ages. And one of the most helpful things I believe now is that life can turn on a dime. And where in the past that has always been said as a precautionary measure, like you might get hit by a bus, like life can turn on a dime, you know, live today because you might get hit by a bus tomorrow. I actually see that so differently. I see the hope in it. I see the hope in the fact that life can turn on a dime and there could be such a different future for you. And when it came to life coaching, my life turned on a dime because in 2007, because the clientele I worked with as a photographer, I had a lot of inklings as to that something was coming with the economy. I saw their buying pattern change long before there was a bust up of the economy, but I recognized the difference. I'm like, they're behaving differently. And my clients were Wall Street people. They knew that to some degree, they knew what was coming. Many of them were probably responsible for what came. So I could see it coming. And so with that in mind, I said, you know, I had a huge, I had plenty of money in the bank and freedom. And so I decided to take it really slow in 2008. I figured my business is going to be down anyway. That was my prediction. And uh, so I took advantage of the opportunity and pursued training as a coach, just as a hobby. And only because the, the aforementioned coach, when I hired him in uh, 1999, I worked with him for seven years and then he retired. So um, I decided I would get coach training because I really, I missed it, having no intention of turning into a career. But there was a moment in, I think the second class of coach training where the coach, the facilitator read to us, Marianne Williamson's poem, Our Deepest Fear. And there's a line in that poem, Our Deepest Fear, that says, you're playing it small doesn't serve the world. And I realized that the facade, the, the identity I held as a shy person, the safe life I had created living in a nice house in Connecticut, the small business that I had created only serving 150 people a year and 80, 80 of those a year were repeat customers. So I only had to meet new people, you know, very few new people a year. I realized all of that was playing it small and I wasn't living up to my potential. I wasn't actually serving while I was in this business of incredible high service to my customers. I wasn't serving the world. What contribution was I making to the world at large? Because I was choosing to identify as shy, small, sweet little business in a nice house in Connecticut. And I heard that line that afternoon. I contacted an organization in New York city called performance of a lifetime and hired a speaking coach and said, I've never spoken on a stage. And I want to become a professional speaker because it was the scariest thing I could imagine doing for someone who identified as introvert and shy. And I figured the only way I'm actually going to meet, leave a mark on this world is that if I do something bigger than the life I was currently living. And literally it was from nine o'clock in the morning, having a poem read to you to that afternoon, contacting a speaking coach. Um, so yeah, there are definitely life moments like that or even a single line from a poem can cause you to live your life differently. I think you probably also has to have a certain appetite for it, like preparation somehow. And then your eyes are open to the opportunity. If you take it, when you're open, mm -hmm. you connect the dots, you're like, bing, 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 gotta go. One of the things I wanted to uh, uh, chat with you about, Jeffrey, since um, I kind of lived uh, and I'm currently self-employed, 
I've done startups, entrepreneurial activities, worked in big business. And, and it, I, when I was reading your book, I kept on thinking, how does this self-employed ecosystem, this idea that's, that personal development will lead to success, typically framed for the self-employed, operate when you're working for as an employee of a larger organization? Talk me through how you feel that that links in for people who are listening to this who are in business. Mm-hmm. Big business. Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious to see where this goes too, you know, because I wrote a book, you know, The Self-Employed Life, very much written for self-employed business owners or those that will consider becoming self-employed, which is a very much a growing trend because the, the rate of unemployment, right, the rate of self-employment sure. will become higher as well. Uh, but I, I, I wrote it, literally saying to my speaking rep and to myself that I'm probably shutting the door on speaking in corporations and accepting that because I felt like I could pivot to speaking more for associations. But I really strongly question that now because what I see now is particularly because of the pandemic, and I started writing the book before the pandemic, but what I see now is our companies and large brands wanting to behave more like self-employed businesses right? The, the, the methods of adaptation they've had to go through. Um, and, you know, if they're paying attention, and I hope many large companies and brands are, there is a genuine revolt against big business, you know, and we were seeing it against Amazon. I mean, there are, when I, in putting this book out, first of all, I wrote a book called The Self-Employed Life. I felt it was important to make sure all the money didn't go to one big behemoth. So we made sure the book is available on for nine online retailers, one of which gives 10% of their proceeds to independent bookstores. I'm personally doing an, an indie bookstore virtual tour. Um, so I'm, I'm a, a guest, a virtual guest at vir, uh, for, uh, for indie bookstores to support them getting the book sales. Uh, because there is genuinely a backlash against huge brands. And I think the, the progressive big brands are paying attention. So I actually think they may want to behave more like us. I think they want more, uh, you know, we're seeing, I, I was speaking recently to somebody in the hospitality industry, and, and we were talking about how brands as big as Marriott have lines, brands, the autograph collection that the independent autographed hotels behave so differently than the corporate model. And you feel as a guest, and I have a couple of very favorite autograph collection hotels that I stay at, one here in Florida and Key West, uh, because it behaves entirely different than the corporate brand. So I actually think in an interesting way that I think it is very possible that I could be a very strong vehicle in companies to bring more of the messaging and mindset and behaviors of self-employed people into the corporate mindset. I used to, um, I speak every now and then for an organization uh, that has groups of CEOs throughout the world. And I tell you what, the first time I was hired to speak at one of these events that were attended entirely by CEOs of companies. Now, mind you, as a photographer, I've spent my whole life hanging out with CEOs and I'm very comfortable with them. Comfortable with them because they are who they are. I am who I am. What you do and who you are and your title doesn't impress me. Who you are as a person is what makes an impression. So, but what made me nervous speaking at these corporate gigs or this these gatherings of this club, if you will, of CEOs is that. I felt so out of their world. And my, my first reaction was just to learn more about their world because that's the ten, I tend to, to think that way. Like, okay, let me, I can serve anybody if I understand their world. But I realized that was actually making me more nervous because corporate world feels so foreign to me. I've, I've never been in it. I've never had a traditional job. What I realized is like, there's a reason why they asked me to be the speaker here. Just be more of who I am. So I stepped deeper into my entrepreneurial mindset. I stepped deeper into the mindsets and behavior of self-employed. So I actually think there's, I think there's a real opening for companies to invite in more of the mindset and thinking of self-employed business owners so that they can learn to be done. Because this is not going to be by any means the last crisis. <laughs> it's not going to be the, that they're coming at a more rapid pace, I think is what we're going to see. 
You know, we had a nice gap between 1999, 9-11 in the US, and then the recession, 2000, we had a gap, and then we had a nice run, right? We had a big gap until the pandemic. I think we're going to see crises of one form or another becoming at a more rapid pace. Uh, and that's not mean to be dooms and gloom, but I just think that's a reality, whether it's a mentioned? virus, right? Yeah. Whether it's a virus or terrorism or something, I think we're going to see them coming at a more rapid pace. You were mentioning before about how to expect more unemployment, and I, and then you also mentioned, and I think it's somewhat similar, the 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 revolt against mm-hmm. corporate world. What I what I linked into, you also said things about uh, being leaders, being uh, an appropriation of the corporate world. My last book is called You Lead, and the, the concept underneath it is you lead you. Mm-hmm. So every individual um, with individuation and and a, a feeling of fulfillment at the individual level is what that's about. And I think that's what I would tap into. I want, your title is interesting for me, the self-employed life. Life. Mm-hmm. Because it's not like the self-employed job. Correct. It's really that it is part of an ecosystem of a life, your networks, trust, and individuals and corporations. If they don't feel that they have that sense of autonomy, the sense of agency within that I can develop myself, why would I bother staying with this corporate ignominious thing unless I'm really not talented? Yeah. I think, you know, that it's perfect that you're asking this because you're actually helping me explore it because where I think I'm going with this idea and what I think is available here is the evolution of the term entrepreneur, which has really never really hit the idea was there. And I, so I think when the uh, term entrepreneur was sort of introduced, it was a very lame attempt at what could be done, right? That I do think because what it, intro, the idea of being an entrepreneur is trying to encourage innovation and independence within a company. But I think it's more than that. I think it is what, what I also want to speak to are people that self-employment is not a ch- the right choice for them, but they want the mindsets and lifestyle of self-employment within the security of a company. So it's more than just being innovative and entrepreneur. I think there's, because hey, being self-employed and having everything hang on your back is not for everybody. That doesn't mean you don't have the personality and mindset to be that individual of great value to a company. And I think there's real room for and. Interestingly enough, my previous book, Lingo, which is a brand message strategy, that ended up getting me to speak at a lot of HR events. Uh, and, and what I speak on is recruiting. And what I, because Lingo as a principle is it as a strategy is to help businesses attract their ideal customers. As I was out in the world speaking about that, companies are coming up to me and saying, you know, I think what you're saying would help us recruit better employees. Because the problem is, is that admittedly, those companies that are progressive minded were admitting to themselves that they're not getting the younger workforce. Like they're, they're not understanding their lingo. They're not taking the time. And I have a strategy that really gets you to tap into the emotion. So I started speaking a lot in the world of HR on how to recruit your dream employees. Okay. Just, it's just taking ideal customers and adapting it to dream employees. Uh, one of my core principles being is I will never for the life of me, because I've always been self-employed, I will never understand why companies try to fix their problems from the inside. Like, why are you trying to solve employee engagement problems once they're already in the company? Why not do a better job recruiting in the first place? Why do companies try to solve the culture problem when the culture already exists? When, what if you built the culture as you're in the recruiting process better so that the right people were coming together, people with shared values, people with values that were aligned with the company in the first place. There's a yet to put a lot less effort into a cohesive family <laughs> to begin with. So, um, you know, I try to work a lot more on the recruiting side, as I see as the frontline filter, just as I see brand messaging for a business to attract your ideal customers, it's your frontline filter. Only get the right customers in the business in the first place so that you're not spending all your time trying to satisfy people that will never be satisfied. So I think there's a real, you know, I think there's a real possibility of companies adapting and giving their, their dream employees more autonomy and, and actually leveraging their self-employed mindsets while they still have the security of, of a job and, and a more traditional job. I think there's real possibility for companies there. 
So I, my pushback is that uh, for businesses, they have their legacy situation. And, mm-hmm. and while recruiting new people into a shit culture, the new people are going to go out as fast as they came in. Because you, if, you're, if your environment in which you bring them in is not good, then they, they ain't going to stay. Yeah. But it does speak to what is the other thought which you had, which is the type of clients you had for your photography you were very selective about that. So we're very much yeah. in, in the same kind of recruitment. Um, and I just wanted to finish with one other comment, which- Well, can we just, I just want to add to something you just said. I think it's the legacy issue, right? But here's my answer to that. What choice do they have? Because I got news for you. The millennials, Gen Z, these workers coming sure. up, like you either fix the problem or you're going to have a real problem recruiting. <laughs> oh, you, you are so right about that. Yeah. And uh, the other, um, a, a millennial wrote a book called Innovation Starts With an Eye, Salima Vellani. And and she came up with a term which I hadn't come across before, which is the hybridpreneur. Hmm. So it's not the entrepreneur, it's not the entrepreneur, it's the hybridpreneur who's able to do a little bit of both and and brings in a bit of that, a bit of corporate, and a bit of and it's sort of a juggle because sometimes you do need process. You're in a big organization, you can't just do everything like you are as a startup. Anyway, so I thought I'd give a little shout out to Salima for that. There are so many other topics that I wanted to talk with you about, Jeffrey. I, I, I feared as much. You had this the business models of model of multiples, building trust, spreading word with podcasts, hugging, hug marketing. Gosh knows all that can be captured in your book. Fortunately, how can someone uh, follow you, hook up to your podcast, uh, and of course get your book, which comes out May fourth. May 4th. Yeah. So, you know, kind of home base for everything related to the world of self-employment. Again, I've got my own website, which is jeffreyshaw.com, but I tend to think it's just cleaner to get you to this point if you go to the selfemployedlife.me, because that's my entire world of self-employment. So it's the self-employed, uh, the, the selfemployedlife.me. And uh, for anybody that, you know, for your listeners that are self-employed, or, you know, hey, Maybe if they're not, this might be a fun. This might be a fun litmus test of what we were just talking about. Is uh, I've created an assessment which one can get at selfemployedassessment.com, and um, worked really hard with somebody to develop an algorithm by whereby you can answer six, quest- six questions, and the algorithm based on your answers can present you with a report of where in your ecosystem you are weaker, be it your personal development, your business strategies, action taking, or your daily habits. So that it then can give you very customized suggestions as to how you can improve in that area. So like a lot of other assessments, but this one's very specific to the ecosystem of business. And again, selfemployedassessment.com. So that's a brand new uh, tool that we've developed to try to get self-employed mindset folks in the right direction. So it'd be interesting to see if some corporate folks took that as well and how that might relate to their own job position. It'd be interesting. Well, I will certainly be doing selfemployedassessment.com myself Mm -hmm. and uh, really great to have you. I, I imagine as much thank you to Leslie for putting us in touch and thank you, Jeffrey, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
strong with challenge I know soon we all die I like the feel of a stranger Tucked around me Precipitating the danger To feel free Trust in my reason And let me show you why My name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.